It's Two Brain Radio. Every week, we'll deliver top-shelf tactics to help you improve your fitness business and move you closer to wealth. And now, here's your host, the most interesting man in fitness, Chris Cooper. What makes a good gym website? The answer to that question keeps changing. Five years ago, I would have said that you need this rotating banner image. Three years ago, I would have said that you have to have one splash page highlighting the benefits of your service. That's true. The problem is that the benefits of your service change by the client you're trying to target. And so you need to be able to adapt. You need to be able to add your own landing pages. Your main cover page should reflect what your most important clients want. That's going to be different from what my most important clients want. So a website that's based on a template with the same kind of rotating image is not going to work anymore. 150 people on the team, not a single employee. Everybody's a freelancer. We don't have an office. Websites I own. I want responsive design that's going to work well on mobile. About 60% of your clients are going to come through mobile and more in the future. I want a responsive designer, which means I can contact them to make changes. And I want to know how to change my own oil. I want to know how to get in there and add my own posts. I talk a lot about content marketing, and that means I have to know the medium through which I'm delivering my content. Using for time design has been my choice now for about three years because Teresa and her team are super responsive. She can answer questions for me. She can show me how to do it myself if I want to, or she can do it for me if I don't have time. She's created a big series of videos for two brain clients in our incubator and growth stages to watch so that they can do stuff like build landing pages themselves. A lot of website companies try to pull the curtain in front of their knowledge. They try to hold a lot of stuff secret so that they can charge you to do the basic things. Just like in car maintenance, changing your oil, rotating your tires. If you want to do that stuff, awesome. If you don't have time to do that stuff, take it to the garage. Teresa at For Time Design gives you both options and she'll even teach you how to do it yourself if you want to. I use ForTimeDesign.com that's what's made them an official two brain partner is our firm belief in their commitment to helping first and a strong sense of service value. Ari Mizell is the co-founder of getleverage.com. He's the author of several books, including Less Doing More Living and Idea to Execution, his latest. Both are absolutely fantastic reads. I highly recommend them. Ari and I went for lunch at Who with a bunch of other people in our group. And over a salad, we talked about the freelance lifestyle and how it's making people happier to not work a nine to five in a cubicle, to have the choice over what they do and how fast they do it and how well they do at it. Ari's firm, Get Leverage, is a VA firm, but they don't believe in just hiring VAs. What they believe in is objectively looking at your processes, automating your processes, and then uh, shipping processes out to a VA when possible. The guy is a bit of a philosopher, and so the reason I invited him on the podcast later was because he had some really big insights about the nature of work and roles and how the entrepreneurial time is best spent that kind of stopped me in my tracks. And several times during the interview in New York, uh, I just stopped talking for a minute while I let a big concept stink in. So Ari was kind enough to make it onto the show. Uh, We booked the appointment over a month ago, and today he spent 45 minutes with us talking about getting leverage in your business, growing to higher value roles, and optimizing your time and your life. Ari Mizell. 
So Ari, welcome to Two Brain Radio. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's my pleasure. To get us started, why don't you share your story? That was really inspiring to me in New York. Yes. Okay. So I have been entrepreneur most of my life. And when I got out of college, I went to visit a friend in upstate New York. And while I was there, he showed me these old buildings from the 1860s. And I had this vision. I was 20 years old. I had this vision that I could build a loft district in Binghamton. And so I made an offer to buy the buildings that day. They were very cheap. Uh, Binghamton's a very depressed real estate market. And the deal was that anybody that worked on the job had to teach me their trade. So I spent the next three years learning and doing every construction trade imaginable. And it was the hardest work of my life. And it was incredible. Uh, it was an incredible experience in terms of the, the learning of how to project manage and build and manage a team of 60 and legal aspects and zoning and politics. And it was old. I built these lofts. I hadn't sold a single one. I was in $3 million of personal debt. And because of the unhealthy lifestyle I've been living, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So I had a pretty rough October of my 23rd uh, year on this planet. <laughs> and very quickly got very, very sick. I was put on a lot of medicine, which initially made me much weaker and sicker. And after having worked, you know, 18 hour days, hard charging in every aspect of my life for three years, barely work at all. And after a long journey of self-tracking and self-experimentation, I was able to get off my medicine and end up competing in Ironman France. And in doing so, I recognize that, you know, supplements and nutrition and fitness are obviously important and they still are, but the stress aspects of my life were something that I really needed to address. And in everybody's life, stress is an inflammatory component. And some people are more prone to certain kinds of breakages than others. And I always believe that the antidote to stress was control. So I started this new system of productivity, which I would call less doing as in less doing more living, where I was teaching people how to optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their lives in order to be more effective. And that developed into a couple of books and teaching and speaking and consulting around the world. And then two years ago, my now my co-founder Nick and I were who were, we were just friends at the time. We were having dinner on a Monday night, and it just so happened that that morning, the largest virtual assistant company in the U.S., which was called Virtual, which is called Virtual, went out of business very, very suddenly and abruptly. And that night, we're having dinner, and we're talking about what had gone wrong, what we thought had gone wrong, what, what could be done differently. And Nick suggested that we start our own virtual assistant company. So 24 hours later, we launched with free tools that were off the shelf, nothing custom. We didn't put a cent into the company and we were scalable and profitable from day one and have been growing at 10 to 20%. It's been 22 months now. And in our first year, we did a million dollars in revenue. Now in our second year, we're on track to do somewhere between three and 4 million. We have 150 people on the team, not a single employee, everybody's a freelancer. We don't have an office. So 150 people in 16 time zones, doing a thousand hours of work every week for over 450 clients. And it's been a wow. wild ride. And our value proposition from the beginning has always been that we can do anything for any business, any, any required need we can do as long as it's legal. And that's, and so we've been growing. <laughs> uh, just to set the stage here, Ari, like what is one extreme example of meeting that any required need fulfillment? Well, I mean, you know, look, we've, we do, we've built websites and apps. We've done uh, enormous research projects and we've done basic stuff like shopping and travel planning. But uh, we've, 
We've arranged for emergency donor breast milk to get to Mexico. Uh, we have arranged for a client to ride a grizzly bear while holding a bald eagle for a photo shoot. And we've helped with uh, naturalization documents and we've helped with divorces and really, uh, you name it, it's, it's, it's come across my desk. Was there any temptation to get your own photo taken with the grizzly bear and eagle too? No, that was not an item on my bucket list. I have to say that was uh, on this client's bucket list for whatever reason. And uh, that, that was not something that would be a thrill for me. It also required a week of training. So, but, You know, I debated asking that question at the beginning because I was really worried. Everybody was asking follow-up questions and yeah, here they come. So uh, anyway, to keep us on track, because it's my fault off to a late start here. I want to jump right to the 80-20 rule. I, I think everybody on this call is is familiar with the Pareto's law, but just, you know, how do we optimize that? Like, how do we know what the 20 is that's going to get us the 80% result? So a lot of this starts with tracking and optimization. That's, that's really the first step in what I do or and what we do is is optimize, then automate, then outsource. We never want to outsource first, which is what a lot of people do do, and they have issues with that. So it starts with tracking. You have to identify what you're doing and how you're doing it. And that may sound simple, but a lot of the times when people say that they're feeling overwhelmed, it's because they just don't know what's causing the overwhelm because there's just so much stuff. So once you start to do some time tracking, if you have a process in your day or your week or your business that you do on a regular basis, I know you have a lot of gym owners here listening, there's got to be things that you guys do every single day that are the same things. Those are processes that need to be documented and identified and improved and anything that can be made into a bulletproof process that can be followed by anybody isn't something that you should be doing because it's clearly not your unique ability by definition if somebody else can do it it's not your unique ability and i promise you that 99 percent of the things that you're doing in a given day can be done and should be done by other people the 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 thing that the the way to get into the mode of the 80 20 and to really understand this is that it, it goes in the face of everything that your ego will tell you, but you have to be constantly thinking of how you can make yourself replaceable. Because if you're not replaceable, you are a liability to your company and your team. There is no other way to say it. If the, the, the operation of the company and the growth of the company is solely dependent on you, that's first of all, a lot of pressure for any person to be dealing with, but it also yeah. really hurts your company. Wow. Uh, that's a lot to think about already. Um, so after we write down all these systems and processes, which, you know, frankly, everybody on the call should have this done by now. What next? How do you optimize time? So the, starting with some time tracking. So if you're working on a computer a lot, then you can use an app like Timing App, for example, which will tell you really detailed amounts of information in terms of how you're using your computer. Are you spending 15 hours a week on email? Are you... Are you on uh, you know, Excel 20 hours a week, whatever it might be? And you start to learn a lot of stuff from that. But just starting with this process idea is another one that's hugely important. So there's a tool called Process Street, which basically looks like a tool for making checklists, but it's extremely powerful in terms of automations. You can automate actions off of specific items on a checklist. You can automatically generate checklists based on outside activities. So for example, maybe every time somebody tweets about your gym, you want to have a process for responding to that tweet. So the tweet itself from somebody could generate a checklist in process street for somebody, you or anybody else to then follow and deal with. And all of these things that we do are processes. So once you start to write out some of these processes, and there's about 38 for me that I do every week for the company, 
and I've written out proxies for all of them. And it's really liberating because you start to see where you're spending time. And once you write out these processes, it becomes a lot clearer to you how you can remove yourself from them. It's very easy for us to have these, it's called heuristics in our brains, which are basically shortcuts. So you do something the way you do it because that's how you've always done it. And your brain is saving energy. You're not really thinking about it, analyzing it. You just kind of do it and go through the motion. The pro, the, if we stop that cycle and we look at how we are actually doing things, then you start to see where the inefficiencies lie. Okay, so give me an example of like one of the 38 things that you do for your company where you've written out the process and now somebody could replace you if, if you wanted them to. So every week I choose bonuses for the, the team. So the, uh, basically our, our VAs are able to apply for a weekly bonus. So when they apply, they are giving all sorts of reasons as to why they deserve it, what they did to exemplify our core values, whatnot. And the bonus is pretty hefty. It's a 50% bonus of whatever you made that week. And the uh, bonuses go into a checklist. So, so when they apply for the bonus, it generates a checklist. And then I go through that checklist and I decide who gets the bonus. But the way I've written it out, somebody else could make that selection for me. And then the best part about that too is that if you award them the bonus, so you click one, it's like, a, think about a checklist. I can say award bonus or reject bonus. If I award the bonus, that generates a new checklist for our head of finance to pay them the bonus. So I do it currently because it's just, it, it's a culture thing and I, I do that. But if I were away for a week or something, somebody else could follow my process and give them the bonuses. I also run our weekly webinars for our members. I have a process written out for that. Uh, when we have a new podcast, all the promotion that goes along with that in terms of doing a Facebook Live and putting it on a Medium and then putting it on a Facebook and then uh, resharing it and emailing the guests, all of that stuff has been processized. And if it's in a process, it does mean that I don't have to do it. Right. Okay. And so can you take this outside of the business too and do it in your own life? I mean, have you written down processes that you do like personally? Of course. Of course. I mean, even look, how you make lunch for your family is a problem or you're in a or family meals. I can contact process. them to make changes. And, and I want to know so much how to change my own oil. I want to know. Processes and stop yourself again and identify like how you're actually spending that time because you'll start to see the whole. So if you, if you write a process in, in uh, absolute terms, that's the biggest thing that people don't understand a lot of times when they do this is that they'll try to write a process. If you ask somebody to write out the process, they'll do it in relative terms. And what I mean by that is that it still requires their own knowledge. So if you are oh. saying, you know, you want to pay somebody, right? So the, so the first step might be like, open the payroll document and go to the third line or something like that. So if I were to see that, I'd say, well, where is the payroll document? How do I access it? Do I need a password for that? You know, so then you start to think like, okay, absolute terms. So open this document and there's a link to it to access it. The password is saved in our one password account, blah, blah, blah. You know, and then you start to think that way. And then on the other side of that, you have to start thinking, relatively in terms of people. So if a part of a process says, you know, when you're finished with this, give it to, uh, let's say that our head of client success is Melissa. So when you're done with this process, give it to Melissa. We have to get out of that habit too, because then it becomes, when you're done with this process, give it to our head of client success so that it's a relative thing in that case. And the same thing for founders. I write, I do this weekly founder call with uh, our members and there's technically two of us as co-founders, so I don't say, you know, it's Ari's webinar, it's the co-founder webinar, and I never refer to myself, and it's always co-founder. And it's a hard thing for people to get their hands around, because again, it's like you're, you're, a lot of people feel like they're devaluing, 
sorry, devaluing themselves. But I see it as the complete opposite. Just expand on that a little bit more. How is this adding, you know, how can you say it's not devaluing yourself by, by um, you know, kind of referring to yourself as a title instead of as yourself? Because, again, if it's something that you can write out in a process, which I'm telling you so many things yeah. are, if, if then, sorry, if, if, you're, if, if you're removing those things that are not, as I said, your unique ability, then that gives your unique ability basically more time to shine. Okay. So, so you're doing and, and I think that a lot of people, especially small business owners, felt that opportunity to just think and to ideate and to use their brains for what they, they really can. Because they're too busy doing these other replicable tasks. Right. Okay. So, you know, taking this into your personal life, in one of your books, you describe the manual of you. Do you want to just walk people through that? Uh, sure. So the manual of you is kind of what I just mentioned, which is that idea of creating, documenting the steps and the things that we go through on a regular basis. And so in my, my manual of you could include everything from how I pay a bill to how I hire and fire people to how I do social media. All of that stuff is there documented. And I, in the book, originally I had been using Evernote for that, but now we have this tool process tree that is just so much more superpower and it's just amazing. Okay. So who would read the manual of you? I mean, is that something that you would share with your family? Uh, well, it, it could be. It's not likely, depending on, you know, if you're delegating to your spouse. I don't know how that would be for your, for your familiar <laughs> relations. But, uh, you know, if you do end up having, like, help or you – it's not even necessarily that you need to do it so that you can offload it. By documenting the processes, you'll start to see inefficiencies in it itself and possibly ways that you can automate things. Okay. So it's really just like an exercise that you're doing for yourself. Correct. Okay. How is that from the external brain? That, you know, that's another concept that I took away from your books. And so the external brain is the brain dumping stuff. So that's where you're, you're giving yourself mechanisms where you can offload ideas. So that could be Evernote. That could be uh, an audio recorder. It could be something like Trello and where you're offloading ideas. And in a lot of cases, if you do it correctly and you have the right system set up, that makes it so that you can offload an idea and somebody else can start working on it. That's like if you're using something like an like a Trello. Uh, if you're using something, for example, like Dropbox. So Dropbox is a great tool for this. It's a again Dropbox. What it does is you open up the app and it immediately starts recording, and it records directly to Dropbox. So then you can have automation triggers off of that that make it so you can, for example, upload that to an assistant to have them transcribe whatever you wrote and then add that to something or just take notes. That's one of the ways that we basically wrote our last book, Idea to Execution, is that Nick and I would just do these audio recordings every day of like things that were interesting that we thought were you know happening. And that ended up sort of creating the 80% of the material for the book. So then your assistant would just kind of take that that brain dump every day and, and tie it into the rest of the content? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what happens to, I mean, not every idea that you're going to have is going to be a good idea. If you're anything like me, how do you kind of prioritize which ideas you're going to work on? So it's a funny thing. Um, you can't know if a good idea is good or not. You, you can't know if it's relevant or not. And the, I think that a lot of times we judge our ideas too much and that causes us to hesitate. And to me, ideas need flow. You have to be able to get ideas out of your head as fast as possible and not worry if they're good or bad. So that's why this external brain idea works really well is that you can just, again, brain dump. A brain dump is not 
you know, this is the perfect idea and I'm going to write it down on paper. No, a brain dump is like, I have an idea and you get out of my head quickly, go. <laughs> we have very limited working memory. So right. you don't necessarily have to have like some hardcore process. A lot of time, I, I would tell you that probably 90% of the things that are in my Evernote are just junk, but that's junk that's not in my head. And that's a good thing to me. So you certainly can have like a review process where if you put things into Evernote or into Trello and you go through your Trello cards every week and, you know, see what's good or bad or what you want to explore further. One of the ways, honestly, is giving things to virtual assistants because you give somebody, like if you give a competent assistant something with very little information, they're going to come back to you with the questions that anybody might ask. And that will help you form the idea even better. They might say, well, what about this and this? And you could say, oh, well, yeah, that's a terrible idea. That doesn't make any sense. Or, you know, that exists or whatever. Or they might ask a question that gets you thinking and saying, yeah, if I just do it this way, that would be really interesting. So there's a, a few different ways to sort of tackle that. Okay. We're definitely going to be talking about virtual assistants soon here, but is there kind of a hierarchy of stuff that you want to get off your plate as a small business owner in general? What is most important uh, to get rid of first? Okay. So the repeatable stuff is the most important, honestly, because it's something that is repetitive. Any repetitive process is a process that just hasn't been automated yet in my mind. And those are the ones that are just soul sucking. I don't care. Like, even if you, even if you're the kind of person who loves doing payroll, <laughs> then it doesn't matter. The repetitive stuff is not something that you as a human being should be spending your time on and certainly not as the head of a company. So if you start by looking at the things that are repetitive, that that's going to be the low hanging fruit in a lot of cases. And then you can move on to things that you don't like doing and things that you're not good at. Although those are a little harder to identify sometimes because I've seen plenty of people who think that they're really good copywriters, but they are not. Uh, I love when you see a small, a small business owner who's like, I have to write it. And it's got to be in my voice. It's got to be in my voice. And I can promise you that most people just don't care. Most clients, most, most people do not care if it's in your quote unquote voice, as long as they're getting the right information, you're not wasting their time and you're adding value. So, that that that's a big part of it and is identifying those things but the the repetitive ones are the easiest one and then another really good exercise to go through that i like which i've stolen blatantly from strategic coach but it really works well for this is look at something that was a really big accomplishment in the last quarter you know whether it is starting your business or hitting a revenue milestone or opening into a new market whatever it might be figure out why that was so important try to identify what the what you can do to move that forward more and then identify what the very next step is to do that. And nine times out of 10, that's something that you can delegate. That's interesting. Okay. Um, so Eric's got a question here about like repetitive work that is creative. I mean, at some stage, there must be somewhere where you're not replicable, right? Of course. Uh, but very few people get to that level on a pure basis until they, well, I mean, yes, of course. You have to strip away a lot of the other stuff. You have to clean up it's like the michelangelo analogy that the sculpture is inside the marble block and he's just getting rid of the other pieces to reveal it so of course not everything is replicable but most of what we do is replicable. most people are really really good at one thing so my unique ability i can tell you my talent and i know this over time here is that i am really really good at connecting the dots and and basically connecting information with those that need that information so if somebody were to ask me about a tool that would do something, I kind of have that in my brain and I know the person that can help facilitate that. So I'm really good at connecting the dots. And uh, I guess some people will call it pattern recognition, but that's, that's what I'm really good at. 
So I, my primary, like the thing that I can do with my time that is the best and the most valuable is to create content and curate content, whether that's an article on medium or a podcast, creating content is what I do best because I can pull that information together. And I create content for three purposes. One is for training of our team. Another one is for attracting new clients and it's for engaging existing clients. And sometimes when I'm lucky, I hit an example that does all three with one piece. Okay. So that's your, you know, your unique uh, strength, but, and you're saying that more than 90% of the stuff that we do is probably not directly related to that unique strength. A lot of the people on this call are going to own a business in which they're the primary operator. Like maybe they're a CrossFit coach and they own a CrossFit gym. So they're coaching most of the classes. You know, at what stage do they get rid of that primary service that they're selling? Well, you know, I, the coaching of the classes is an interesting one. So I used to actually teach a cardio class. My wife had a yoga studio, and I've 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 probably been in uh, over fifty different CrossFit gyms in my life so far. <laughs> and there are certainly occasions where the head of the gym should be teaching. I think one or two special classes, but those should be few and far between. And honestly, I think that at the end of the day, if you train good coaches, you're, you should be growing the business. And one of the ways to grow the business is not necessarily teaching classes. It might be holding special workshops that outsiders are welcome to join and then they can become members of the gym. Mm. But while it might feel good and it's certain, and I know it's fun to teach the classes, you're not necessarily driving the business forward by doing that. And it's not necessarily the best use of your time. And to that point, I believe that there is a lot more to learn from watching somebody else do something poorly than for you to go through it yourself necessarily. Give me an example of that in, in the gym context. Do you have one, Ari? Yeah, teaching a class is a good one. I mean, what, if you, it, so, well, I'll give you one of my own example and then I can yeah. relate that to this. So we okay. do a lot of call, but, so I have a head of client success, my name is Melissa. And she deals with any client complaint, any client cancellation requests, all that stuff. And every single call she makes is recorded. So when we were first onboarding her and bringing her on, the first month or so was a little rough, to be honest. And it was not her fault. It was me, I don't think, training her well enough. So I was like, all right, I got to do this myself for a little while, which is fine. And I did it myself for about a month. And I got, we got our churn rate down to the lowest it's ever been since we started the company 20, you know, two months ago. Yeah. And I learned a lot and I wrote a lot of processes. And a week ago, I, I was like, all right, I'm ready for you to take on your first call again. Go through what I read and do it. She, she did the first call. I listened to the recording and I was like, holy shit. These are two things that I hadn't even thought of that she just got wrong. She gave the client wrong information. It's not her fault. I didn't tell her. I didn't think of it. Okay. So I learned so much from that one call that it, it was amazing. So I'm a big fan of recording things in general and video and audio are great. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry, video is great if you can. So do a video uh, and you shouldn't be there because I think that, that you get like observer bias basically. But have a video of a coach teaching a class and then you watch the video and see what you would have done differently and correct it and then put that back into a process that becomes part of a training manual. So that's the new baseline for other coaches coming in. You also can make a video of what you feel is the perfect CrossFit class. And that's part of the training that people should watch. This is how we do it here. And the thing that you have to get across to people, again, it's not a devaluing thing, but I don't care if somebody has been in the fitness world for 20 years and they've been teaching CrossFit at seven different gyms across the world. 
they've never done it at your place. And it doesn't mean that you are better than everybody else, but you are different and you should be different. So bringing people in to that kind of environment where there's the expectation of constant improvement and looking for things that could be done better sets you off on the right foot. Okay. Love it. All right. So, you know, several years ago when I was starting to get my act together in my gym and I was listening to four hour work week and, and hearing about virtual assistants, I thought that's a really cool concept, but like, what are they going to do for me now though, where a lot of us have full-time staff in our gym who are doing administrative work and writing newsletters and stuff. It, it hits me that maybe we don't need a full-time person to do this at all, that maybe we could have a professional copywriter writing our emails for us. Right. When you're, when you're dealing with yep. new people who are using virtual assistants for the first time, like what are the concerns that they typically have? So if, you've, if they've worked with a virtual assistant before, a lot of times people have issues with quality control. Yeah. And as I said originally, the whole process that we teach of optimized automated outsource, we want people to outsource as the last step. The problem, when most people have an issue with outsourcing, it's because they tried to outsource first. And when you outsource an inefficient process, you don't make it more efficient. You make it way less efficient. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. it's important that you go through this process first and I think that when people do that and they identify the process themselves, it's a lot easier to see where a third party could add value uh, but the other thing is that obviously you want to work with competence so there's plenty of virtual assistants out there that are three or four dollars an hour and you get what you pay for and we see that all the time we're not a, we're not a cheap service we're forty dollars an hour we bill by the second but we're not going to have to do it five times over to get it right. Right. Okay. So, you know, you're familiar with the fitness industry, Ari. Just off the top of your head, as somebody who doesn't own a CrossFit gym, what would you say are some areas where a VA could really step in and help out if the program has already been automated, the role has already been automated? Yeah. So social media would be one. And I, I the, the obviously the problem with CrossFit gyms is that, you know, they're, they're somewhat homogenous. And you could have, I mean, like in New York, for example, where I live, I mean, I, I can probably throw a stone to six different CrossFit gyms from where I live. Um, and so, you know, differentiating yourself that way in social media is a big help with that. And it's one of those things that just, it's just easy to have somebody put on autopilot for you and do that. Uh, anything having to do with billing is really easy for virtual assistants, especially like following up with delinquency. So that's a big one where people forget about that if a credit card fails, you have a system and do you have a system in place to not just remove that person from your system or you know, not allow them access, but actually make it so that they don't churn off because their credit card failed? And a lot of people just forget. Credit cards expire. They don't update it. They don't get a chance to do it. So having systems in place, and a lot of that, by the way, could be automated by things like Chargeify that we can set up for people. Uh, other things like client outreach you know, and doing those kind of like emails to get people more engaged and setting that up. Event logistics. You know, if you're going to do a workshop and you need to promote that and get tickets organized and all that kind of stuff, you can do that as well. Ordering supplies. That's a good one, too. Uh, I've had uh, not a gym, but where was it? I had some office where they set up a webcam in the uh, stock room so that a VA could check on a weekly basis and order what they needed to. Wow. That's so cool. So, for example, like a lot of us have very specific software that we use for booking and billing and tracking, you know, members and stuff like that. I mean, could a VA access that software, look at who has set a personal best for the week, call or email them, or is that too deep? No, of course they can. That's a perfect use. 
Awesome. Yeah, it's it's amazing that uh, to you, it's like, yeah, of course we can. That's obvious. And to us, I think there's a lot of people listening right now who are just kind of like smacking their forehead. Like, why am I doing this thing? You know, um, how how much autonomy over like money and time should we be thinking about giving to a VA? Well, again, this goes back to the process. I really do believe that a process is not just about making something more easy to follow necessarily, but you're really reducing training is what you're doing. Because if you tell somebody, look, this process is perfect. We've tested it with multiple people. Follow the process. Then any competent person should just be able to get in and go and jump in and, and, and help. And so that then makes it so that, well, I mean, that, that, that's really it. I mean, like you, you can see it at that point. So, yeah. Okay. But what about, what about money? Like, let's say, okay. Um, you know, there is a, uh, there's a client. Oh, sorry. Yeah. How much autonomy? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's a few ways around that. Obviously you can develop trust with a particular VA. Like you can do that. We, we, you know, our, all of our finances are managed by one of the people on our team, Casey, who does all the finance stuff. And we've just built up trust over time, but there are also safeguards in place. Uh, you know, we never have people using their own login. For example, everything is a shared login that's done in one password. So that's secure and you could technically remove access that way. Plus, we have checklists for oversight. Uh, we use Slack for all team communication and every single transaction that's done is posted into a Slack channel. So it's transparent. It's very public. There's no way around that. If, if, if you were to try to transfer money out for some reason, we would see that pop up and that would be unusual. So uh, there, there are all sorts of safeguards you can put in place there. but at the end of the day, if somebody really does want to do something malicious, there's very little that we can do to actually stop that. So operating on the basis that, you know, if you if you do this, you might get taken for a ride is, is, is not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's, it's interesting to me um, that there are like these safeguards kind of in place now, right? So... Why don't you tell us about like how your Slack channel works because that's going to be new to a lot of people, and then uh, just about you know how the VA service works in general. Sure. So, uh, well, we have this Slack group for it's a membership group which is the Leverage Labs, and so that's got about 600 people in it now at this point that are all just jamming on productivity. There's a biohacking channel. There's a there's a there's even a book club in it now. And it's a really, really interesting group of, I'd say, mostly entrepreneurs. And then on the team side of things, we use Slack exclusively. We're an email zero company. We don't exchange any email internally. Everything is done on Slack, which is uh, really important. And then the VA service itself. So we charge a subscription fee and then an hourly rate. So we charge $199 per month plus $40 per hour. And the $40 per hour is billed by the second, as I mentioned. The $199 a month is our membership fee. And what that gives you is access to the Leverage Labs. It gives you uh, access to my weekly members-only webinar that I do every Tuesday. And the biggest thing I'd say is that you get something we call strategy calls. So they're 20-minute, essentially, coaching calls that you can book anytime. They're unlimited and they're not billable time to really just talk through a productivity challenge and how it can be improved and how it can be put into a better process or how it can be offloaded. And and that's one of the, the real key value that we give for the, the subscription that the people love. Yeah, that's really awesome. I love that you don't just go straight to uh, the VA. Um, okay, so Ari, you know, one of the, you know, we were kind of talking over lunch there, but um, 
one of the most profound things that you said that actually stopped me in my tracks for a couple minutes was this this concept of um, freelancing. Now, in the gym industry, uh, it's it's kind of been this pervasive myth that only career coaches should be taken seriously, that anybody who's coaching should want to make a full-time career at this. But there are a lot of people who really just want to coach two or three hours a week and they want to cha- trade for their membership. Can you just kind of share your philosophy and thoughts on the the freelance lifestyle? Yeah, I think that we're in a situation now. Is I, I, I believe that we are helping to shape the future of work because every freelancer can work when they want and where they want. But we offer something unique, which is that they can work on what they want. And we do that through a number of very sophisticated matching algorithms that let but that let people see what's a match for their skill set, and then they can choose, which means that they're more engaged, more excited about it. They're they're they want to do it. And what we're finding is that people love this work. They love the job. They love the flexibility. We have lots of people who are stay-at-home parents, and they're we have, we're very open. We do a, a a group a Zoom huddle every week with the whole team, and I'd say a third of the screens have a kid in them. Because the kids wandered up and got on, and I've, I've done that myself. And, <laughs> that's awesome. And that's fine because that's what people coach. And yeah, and the thing is, is that if you take somebody who is of a freelance mentality and you try to make them into employees, it's like caging a bird. You're just never going to get the same level of productivity. Whereas now we get people who voluntarily stay up till five in the morning to learn a new skill because they want to get something done for a client, and they voluntarily help other members of the team. And again, we don't have any employees. So for people that spend their time for free to help other people on this team, it's just incredible. And I think it really speaks to the culture that we have cultivated. I really just, I love the term freelance in general, because um, it used to just apply more to the creative, you know, jobs and, and tasks and stuff. But I really don't think that anybody um, necessarily has to be made into a full-time coach to want to enjoy coaching. And where um, there's this kind of notion in our industry that it's like, we want to get people to be this full-time coach. The truth is that most people don't actually want that. Uh, they're happy doing like the two to three hours a week or whatever. And if that makes them happy and allows them to progress all that stuff, then that's awesome. You know, we should be leaning into that as long as uh, we could, they're still doing our training, showing up for our meetings. And if we're not making absurd requests of them, I, I think that's reasonable. So the mindset was the first thing I wanted you to get from this. The second thing is um, there are a certain number of roles and tasks in your gym that really don't need a full-time person to take care of them. So um, you know, now it's so much easier. Once you've got your processes down, you guys have all done roles and tasks before. Now, if we can automate those things, that's when you would turn to a VA. And I think part of our service is that like 20 minute consultation every month where he's going to say, okay, well, here's what we could take off your plate. I think that might be super valuable. Ari and I ended our talk there, but I wanted to add a few notes at the end of this episode. First, if you're already in the two brain family, you've done your roles and tasks exercise. That means the optimize and automate steps are largely done already. At this point, if you've got a list of admin roles and tasks, or even just a list of things that you're not doing, If you go back through your checklist and say, oh, I struggled to get this done or this took me more time or I could just, you know, do this easier by paying somebody, it's going to be really, really easy for you to use a VA. If you're not in a two-brain group and you haven't done your roles and tasks exercises, I wouldn't suggest going with a VA right away. 
you need to know exactly what it is that you want them to do or else, you know, just like a salary, you're going to fall into the exact same trap of paying somebody for time and then their work is going to expand to fill that time. Where I think a VA is possibly optimized for use in a gym is, of course, to do the roles and tasks exercise and then to start with small tasks that you don't feel comfortable doing. For example, start with something really, really small like getting an email newsletter out or building a landing page or setting up like a Facebook funnel or something like that. Maybe you've got something written that needs editing, so you try that with a VA. Again, always bullets before cannonballs. I think, though, that it's possible to move booking and billing, everything like this, toward a VA, and then to see really how much time it actually takes. If you want to have a full-time GM in your gym, that's still great when you're ready to shift the burden of day-to-day responsibility to them. But if you're just trying to get more work done or optimize your time better or move to higher value roles, that's where a VA can fit in. Of course, again, only after you follow the pathway of optimize, automate, and then outsource. Have a great week.